Welcome to Blood is Red, Volume 1 of the Color Collection series of short story anthologies written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Blood is Red is also available as an ebook and an unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash blood is red. Good day, Junkie. My newest release, Druden, is out at audible.com and graphicaudio.net. And you can go to scottsigler.com slash D-R-U-D-E-N to hear a preview of it and read the synopsis. Druden is an original feature-length screenplay that the good folks at Graphic Audio have turned into a full-cast audio drama complete with gripping sound effects and cinematic music. Druden is a very scatty World War II horror story. Listen real quick to these reviews the junkies have posted up on Audible. Gavin said, Excellent, thrilling war horror. Highly recommended if you like to be scared. Not a long ride, but a good one. Timothy Clark said, Not just a gripping, action-packed military horror story, but also a feast for your ears. Amazing voice actors. Every performance is masterful. Real, emotionally raw, and terrifying. Imagine saving Private Ryan with a horrifying twist. So good, a must-listen. William Bennett said, Great cast and atmosphere. Another hit from Sigler. This felt like a Twilight Zone story rather than a novel. You are thrown right into the action. Then one review so far over at graphicaudio.net. Alfred said, Hold on to your seat. What will happen next? This book has it all. Oh, snap! I love it when the junkies dig my work. My co-creator, Adrian Picardi, and I Hope you get a chance to snag this story, and I hope you dig it just as much. And now that I am done further inflating my already overly inflated ego, let's get back to Snipe Hunt. This is part three, and it brings the story to a close. The penniless quartet have seen their quarry, strange moving bits of newspaper that they think hide the snipes, the supposedly non-existent animal they set out to find as part of their final exam in biology. They didn't expect to find anything at all, but find something they have. Now armed with tranquilizer pistols and a sledgehammer, they aim to ace that exam. But they are about to realize that book learning and street smarts are two very different things. A lesson that may prove fatal. And now, part three of... The Great Snipe Hunt. At 11.50 p.m., the penniless four rushed out of the building like a SWAT team closing in on a serial killer. They followed Carlos, who knew the lot's rubble piles well, and in just under a minute, they were at the hole. Carlos carried a thick flashlight and a tranquilizer gun. Che carried the other pistol. Shamiqua carried a portable video camera equipped with a spotlight. Jake carried a 20-pound sledgehammer. Panting slightly, Carlos knelt and shone the flashlight inside the hole. He saw a flash of movement, a bit of brown fur perhaps, but it was gone so fast he barely registered it. I saw something! He stood, excitement visible on his lean frame, eyes alight with the thrill of the chase. Do it, Jake! Now! Jake swung the sledgehammer horizontally. His motions were smooth and practiced, as if he'd done it a million times before. A cinder block evaporated when the sledge connected, kicking up a cloud of gray dust and sending masonry pebbles skittering across the ground. 
he reared back and struck again. Each time he swung, another block disappeared. In less than 30 seconds, true to his word, the hole was wide enough to crawl through. Let's go, everyone, Carlos said. He guided Cheyenne first, then Shamiqua. He motioned for Jake to follow, but the big Texan shook his head. I ain't going in there, chief, Jake said. No fucking way. What are you talking about? This was your idea. It's probably crack house. You probably got crazy crackheads in there. Jesus, Jake, don't pull that hayseed shit on me now. I'd just as soon shave my nuts with a push mower, Jake said. Give me your trank gun. I'll use those chunks of concrete over there like a blind. If you flush anything out, I'll nail it. Carlos started to protest, but saw it was useless. It terrified Jake just to be outside in the city at night, let alone be dragged into an abandoned building. He handed Jake the pistol. Carlos turned and slipped through the expanded hole. Che and Shamiqua were waiting for him on the other side. Carlos took Che's pistol. Che didn't seem to mind. The room appeared to have once been an office. Scraps of moldy paper littered the floor, and a thick, musty smell filled the room. Flashlight beams probed the darkness, reflecting off of dull pieces of metal and sparkling off the countless glass shards that seemed to be the property of every abandoned building. The trio immediately noticed spots in the floor that were free of dust, like little paths that led toward other holes and through empty doorways. They aren't as careful in here, Shamiqua said. She swept left and right with the camcorder, one eye squinted shut, the other hidden behind the viewfinder. Carlos strode out of the room, following the main path that led down the hall. He walked quickly, counting on the others to stay with him. Movement. A flash of brown. It disappeared around a corner. He sprinted to catch up, running awkwardly as he tried to keep both the trank gun and the flashlight in front of him. He turned the corner and saw the streak of brown in his flashlight beam. He chanced a shot. A small squeal, then nothing. I think I got him! He moved forward, toward the spot where he'd fired, but he found nothing. The other two caught up with him, panting from the sprint through the dark hallway. Flashlight beams madly probed the floor. Carlos saw it first, and his heart both sank and leapt at the same time. A pair of clearly defined tracks, tiny footprints with a wider track between them, as if two small animals had dragged a third. The tracks led through a hole in the wall barely six inches high. Shamiqua stared at the tracks. What the hell is that? You hit one and two others come and drag them away? That's how it looks. Oh my God, Carlos, this is incredible. They care for the wounded. That's a big assumption, Carlos said, now fully convinced of the reality of the snipes, or at least in the reality of very smart rats. Maybe they instinctively drag the dead away so people can't find them. It doesn't necessarily connote compassion. In fact, hey, Chase said, you better come take a look at this. Carlos and Shamiqua turned. Che's light illuminated an object sitting on the dirty hallway floor. A piece of metal reflected their collective flashlight beams. It was brighter than the other metallic debris they'd seen. Carlos picked it up. It was an eight-inch metal blade, once part of a knife, fastened to a ten-inch-long wooden dowel. Incredibly thin thread, perhaps it was fishing line, lashed the blade firmly to the dowel. Fucking hey, Carlos said. It's a goddamn spear. Shamiqua nodded slowly. Tool use. Doc P said they'd likely use tools. Che's voice quavered through the dusty darkness. A foot-long spear? What good is that? No good to people, 
Shamiko said quietly. But if you're only a foot tall, it's like a halberd or a pike or something. Shea shook his head, his expression a battle between disbelief and fear. What are you saying? That this is a snipe weapon? Exactly, Carlos said. He suddenly felt foolish and stupid. He hadn't behaved like a naturalist at all. They discovered an animal with peculiar habits. Instead of observing, he let the others talk him into rushing headlong into this place, not knowing for a second if it was dangerous. If the snipes were for real, which they appeared to be, unless the spear was the handiwork of some strange child, he'd ignored the conclusion he'd reached with Shemiqua, that in order to exist, the snipes would have to eliminate any human who discovered them. That had all been conjecture and hypothesis, part of a game, but it wasn't a game anymore. Carlos turned to face his friends. Let's find Jake and get the hell out of here. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe there's a simple explanation that maybe this is a kid's toy or something. But if this is a weapon, I sure as hell don't want to stick around to see if they have more. They walked through the building, back toward the hole. Shadows jumped and danced as they swung their flashlights, sending the beams to examine every corner, every nook. Darkness hung in the building like thick black cotton, clinging to every surface. Several times they thought they'd heard movement. Perhaps the skitter of little feet, or, worse yet, the scrape of a tiny spear on brick or concrete. Were the snipes lurking? Were they watching? The two minutes it took them to reach the hole seemed like an eternity. Shamiqua crawled out first, never so grateful to see the night sky and the street lamps humming glow. Carlos followed. Che came out last, and he automatically moved to check on the equipment. Jake wasn't there. Fuck, Carlos said. Where the hell is Jake? Maybe he went around the building, Shamiqua said. Carlos shook his head. No way. He's terrified of this place, and I told him not to leave the lot. You think he got mugged? Not likely. My brother owns this turf, and he's got people looking out for us. Maybe Jake just went back to the apartment to take a dump. Che's voice, full of fear and anxiety, ripped through the darkness. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit! Get over here! Get over here! Carlos and Shamiko ran to Che, who knelt in a pile of rubble. Inside the pile was a camera, or at least what was left of one. It had been smashed into a hundred pieces. God damn it! Che's voice bordered on a hysterical shout. You said your brother would protect all this stuff, Carlos! Do you know how much this thing cost? Carlos stared, a cold feeling clamping his gut as if the fingers of a dead man clutched his intestines. Let's check out the rest of the equipment. I got a bad feeling about this. They ran to the infrared scanner. It, too, was smashed beyond repair. They checked everything. Cameras, ultrasonic mics, motion detectors, all demolished. Che picked up a microphone, saw it was broken, tossed it back to the ground. Well, there goes my life. We had 50 grand worth of equipment that I'm responsible for. You said your brother would protect this shit, Carlos. Fucking vandals come in here and do this. Man, I'm so totally screwed. Carlos put his hand on Che's shoulder. Che, listen to me. I don't think this was vandals. Oh, sure. Maybe someone was just trying to fix them for me. Or maybe it was your fucking snipes. That's exactly what I think it was. Che's expression melted from fury to fear. Shamiqua stared at Carlos. Her arms wrapped tightly around her shoulders, her eyes wide and white. I think these things knew we were watching them, Carlos said. I don't know how they knew, but they did. I think Doc Pillion was more right than he could know. These things will do anything to keep themselves a secret, and we found a way to expose them. That's why they destroyed the cameras, because I guarantee you no one got through my brother's people. Che shook his head. But that's impossible. 
How can animals associate their protection with electronic equipment? That's insane. Carlos nodded. Insane or not, that's what happened. These things are smart. Now listen to me. If they figured out the cameras, we need to assume they're smart enough to figure out where the information went. I want you to go back to the apartment and make sure all the data is safe. We need that most of all. Shamiko and I are going to go look for Jake. If Jake is back at the apartment, both of you come find us, but stay together. If he's not there, just stay put. Che nodded, then ran toward the apartment building. Carlos and Shamiko moved back toward the hole, using their flashlights to sweep the area. They moved away from the hole in ever-increasing arcs, not saying a word. Shamiko's flashlight struck a small spot of wetness. Under the streetlights, it was impossible to define the puddle's true color, but an icy feeling in her heart told her it was red. Carlos, she said, and needed to say no more. They moved toward the wet spot, then found another and another. A wet streak led up and over a pile of cinder block rubble. Behind the pile lied Jake Longdale. He lay motionless on his back, shirt covered with wetness that looked slick black in the dim light. The flashlight beam, however, showed the wetness was blood red. Oh, fuck, Shamik was said. She didn't move. Carlos sprang over the pile and knelt next to his friend. There was so much blood. He felt for a pulse. Nothing. He's dead, Carlos said. Fuck, Shamik was said again. She seemed to stumble, just catching herself before she fell. Tears poured down her face. Oh my God, Carlos, what happened? He's been stabbed. Several times. You don't think it was the, you don't think it was the snipes, do you? To Carlos, it all made sudden, shattering sense. The snipes existed. The penniless four had discovered that existence, which meant, in the minds of the snipes, that the penniless four had to die. Anyone who knew of the snipes had to die and it had to be in a human fashion. Carlos knew instantly that the cops would list Jake's death as a murder, not some animal attack. The autopsy would show death by multiple stab wounds. This part of the city was a rough place, and one more unsolved random murder wouldn't mean shit. Jesus Christ, Carlos, Shamiqua said. Her words came out in sob-choked stutters. What the hell are these things? How fucking smart are they? Smart enough to know when they have to protect themselves. Come on, Shammy. We're getting the hell out of here. He took her hand and led her away from Jake's body. They moved quickly across the rubble-strewn lot, flashlights picking out a path through the maze of jagged concrete slabs, rusted iron, masonry, and broken glass. Then, another light, a brighter, flickering light, caught his eye. He looked up. His apartment building was on fire. Flames shot from the second-floor window of his mother's apartment, casting an iron-hot glow across the vacant lot. Billowing red flames covered the apartment building doors. The place had always been a tinderbox waiting to go up, and fire spread so fast it seemed like a living animal. Oh no! He let go of Shamiko's hand and sprinted for the building, toward his family, toward Shay, all of whom were trapped inside. Shamiko ran to keep up with him. She saw movement up in front of Carlos. Something was on the ground, several somethings. She pointed her flashlight and saw them. The moment fused into her brain in a split second, like a mental etching, freezing every detail. Although she was a good 15 yards away, she saw them clearly. Slinky, one-foot-tall creatures. Big black eyes. A pointed, tapered nose. Mottled gray fur. Three of them. Two held a tiny platform, one on either side, as if the small block of wood were a royal litter. 
The third creature stood behind them, holding a thick string that ran to the litter's strange passenger. A thirty-eight special. Carlos! was all she had time to say, before the last knight yanked back on the string, which pulled the trigger. The gun spat out a brief cone of orange. Carlos spun around, red instantly smearing his shoulder. He managed two steps before the litter bearers adjusted their position and the trigger snipe again yanked the string. Another cone of orange. Carlos fell, holding his stomach. Shamiqua took one look at Carlos, then stared back at the snipes. Like a tiny artillery unit, they rotated the handgun litter towards Carlos's head. With instincts bred of a childhood spent on the streets, she sensed movement behind her. She didn't stop to think or debate, she simply reacted. Shamiqua ran. She moved to her left, towards the rust-eaten hippie bus. From behind her came a gunshot, then the whine of a bullet striking a cinder block near her leg. Hot shards of masonry dug into her calf, but she didn't stop moving. It was a second artillery unit, and this one was meant for her. A gunshot from her right. She knew Carlos was dead. The flashlight beam bounced madly with each passing step. She sprinted with no concern for footing, pulling out her keys as she moved. She'd made runs like this many times back in New York. It wasn't the first time she'd been shot at, nor was it the first time she'd seen a friend gunned down. She slipped into a survival mode, a fight-or-flight response that blocked out all thoughts of Carlos, Che, Jake, all thoughts of the snipes. Another bullet whizzed past her left ear, but she reached the van without being hit. She wrenched the door open and dove in with the same motion, slid the keys into the ignition, started the van, and pulled out with a grinding of gears and a squealing of tires. She gunned the engine. The BW bus shot down the street, away from the growing fire, away from danger. Dr. Pillion stared at Shamiqua. She sat in his office chair, shivering despite the blanket wrapped around her shoulders. Glistening tears streaked her chocolate skin. Her story seemed incredulous, but he'd known this girl for four years. She was smart. No, beyond smart, Shamiqua was brilliant, an excellent observer, and not given to fits of hysteria or even exaggeration. As crazy as the story was, he knew she told the truth. You're sure they're all dead? His heart hung low at the thought of losing Carlos. The other boys, too, even though he hadn't known them. So young, so full of promise, so much left to learn, and now they were gone. Shamiqua simply nodded, sniffling back the tears. She looked at him, accusingly. Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you warn us? Dr. Pillion bit back a sob of his own. Even though he couldn't have known, guilt chewed at his soul. I assure you, my dear, it was just a farcical theory. I had no idea they were real, never even gave it a thought myself. And yet it seems they filled the niche exactly as I described. Did you recognize the creatures? Were they rats? Maybe raccoons? No, I, I think I recognize them, but it doesn't make any sense. Tell me what you think they were. They look like, well, meerkats. Like mottled brown meerkats. The word stunned Dr. Pillion. If he had doubts regarding any element of her story, they vanished with this piece of observation. Meerkats. Small burrowing mammals of the African deserts. Highly intelligent. They lived in bands and showed amazing powers of cooperation when it came to labor, such as digging or building a nest. 
The most important thing, however, was their hands. Small but prehensile, as agile as that of a monkey. With just a little evolutionary nudge, they would have enough intelligence to fill the snipe niche. And they fit the timeline flawlessly. The cradle of civilization? Egypt, where meerkats could have easily begun filling the strange new niche provided by developing human cities. Creatures smart enough to live at the fringes of civilization without being caught might wind up in a boat, or a caravan, then to other cities, and from there, a radial expansion until, just like rats, where there were cities, there were meerkats. Doc, they're going to get me, Shamik was said. Her voice was tiny, frail, resigned to doom. I know about them. They kill anyone who knows about them. Dr. Pelian knelt next to Shamiqua, took her quivering hand. They're not going to get you, dear. You're 50 miles from the city. You're safe. She shook her head. Her eyes flashed to every part of the room. It doesn't matter. They're going to get me. Dr. Pillion stroked her hand. She was obviously in shock. Who wouldn't be? She'd seen some theoretical animal come to life and brutally murder her friends. The fact that she could talk at all was a testament to her fortitude. She wouldn't feel safe until she was away from buildings completely. Somewhere, there were no hiding places. Listen to me, Dr. Pillion said. He reached out and gently turned her head so she looked into his eyes. I'm going to send you to my parents' ranch in Arizona. It's as far away from a city as you can get. The Snipes evolved to live in urban areas, so you'll be safe at the ranch, wouldn't you agree? She nodded slowly. Good. Now, go to your room and pack your things. I'll call one of my grad assistants to drive you straight there. We won't bother with an airplane, for these Snipes could live at the airport just as they do in a city. How does that sound? Just get me the fuck out of here, Doc. I'll have someone pick you up in 20 minutes. They won't get you, my dear. I promise you that. She left his office. Blanket still wrapped around her shoulders. He had to work fast, organize equipment, a team, arrange some kind of protection. It was one thing to study predators in the wild and stay safe. It was quite another to face a creature that used knives, that used guns. This was the discovery of the century. The snipes couldn't be allowed to live, of course, not if they killed people. He moved to the window. Shamiqua had driven her VW bus right up onto the Natural History Building's lawn, then jumped out and ran straight to his office. He'd get her out of there, make her feel safe. He stared at the van, watching Shamiqua exit the building, blanket wrapped protectively around her shoulders. She hopped in and started the engine. Then he saw it. A tiny trail of flame, moving from under a thick pine tree toward the van's rear. He put his hand on the window and started to shout, but even if she could have heard him, it was too late. The van filled with flame, a huge woof that instantly engulfed her. He saw her burning hands beat at the windshield, then retreat into the roiling flames. The VW's door opened. A flaming body ran out, stumbling, hitting herself. They got her. Smart enough to sabotage a car? Smart enough to use fire? He turned to race out of his office. He had to help her. He stopped suddenly. A piece of crumpled newspaper sat in the corner of his office. He noticed it because it moved. He realized suddenly that now he was the only one who knew about the snipes. The paper moved again.
In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Author's note for The Great Snipe Hunt. Dateline, 1998. I was early into my involvement with the Horror Writers Association and actively looking for short story markets. Through HWA, I found a market report for Out of the Shadows and Into the Night, a compilation focusing on, quote, weird tales of the modern age, end quote. I created the story niche and submitted it. A rejection letter came quite promptly. Such is life. What's interesting to me now is that I can't find a copy of Out of the Shadows, and I'm not sure if it was ever published. As for the story's inspiration, I was browsing through biology books and found The Field Guide to Urban Wildlife. I think it was part of the Peterson First Guide series, but I can't be sure. Listen, buddy, we're talking about more than a decade here, okay? So back off. I remember buying the book on the spot, spending the next few days reading it and being blown away by the concept of urban wildlife. Our cities have complex, self-sustaining ecosystems. This may seem obvious, at least now that you've heard me say it, you damn faker, but it had never occurred to me and it blew my doors clean off. The concept hammered home the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum. On this planet, where there is energy, there is life. Once I grasped the concept of non-human, city-based ecosystems, it just made sense that an open niche, that of a dominant predator, could be filled by something particularly nasty. I played with the idea for a long time. Like most horror authors, I tried to envision a large animal. Modified humans, werewolves, cellar-crawling mutants, that kind of thing. The more I studied, the more I realized this dominant predator had to be small. As normally happens with my stories, it's not one idea that makes it click, but rather three or four slamming together to spin into sweaty inspiration. Nearly 1990s, I was in a band. When we weren't playing, we watched a crapload of nature shows. A case of beer, a science marathon on cable, and we were set. During one of these sessions of high motivation, I saw the meerkats, saw their cooperative behavior, and I shit a metaphorical brick. Look at them little hands! The part that really knocked my block off was watching five or six of them team up in a digging chain, a fireman's brigade approach to moving dirt. That image screamed intelligence and cooperative planning in a way nothing else did save for the societies of you social insects. But meerkats are mammals. 
Their cooperative behavior is taught and learned. It's not instinctive. Many people have asked if I wrote this story after watching the TV show Meerkat Manor. Nope, this story was done seven years before that show ever hit the small screen. But now that you're done with the great snipe hunt, go watch a few episodes of Meerkat Manor and tell me if those little fuckers don't make you think they are looking right at you, just wondering when you might go to sleep. So that's two elements of the story, but where did the snipe hunt part come from? From a 1985 episode of the sitcom Cheers. I shit you not. Sam and the gang take Frasier out in a snipe hunt, and when they come back, they've left Frasier in the woods. Hilarious! When I saw the episode, of course, the first thing I thought was, well, what if there was a snipe, and it was a predator, and it fucking ate Frasier's fucking face? These are things I think when I watch sitcoms. Don't even ask me what goes through my head when I see Two and a Half Men. So that was the combination of ideas. Urban wildlife and ecosystems, Mother Nature getting down with her abhorring a vacuum, meerkats being all smart and cute and stuff, and Sam and the boys being total dickheads to Frasier. Mix well, bake at 350 for 20 minutes, serve while warm. At some point, and I don't remember why, I changed the story name from Niche to The Great Snipe Hunt. I'm happy I did. I think it's a little bit better. I hope you liked it. You have been listening to Blood is Red, Volume 1 of the Color Collection series of short story anthologies written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author. For more information on Scott, please visit scottsigler.com. Blood is Red was produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Copyright 2023, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is Dead Silence by the composer Vazia Sakal. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.